Welcome to the Bethel Free Baptist Church Weekly Sermons. This is the evening service of Sunday the 22nd of September 2013, entitled Caring Enough. And the Bible reading is taken from Philippians chapter 2. Here's Pastor Larry T. Curtis. Philippians chapter 2, we'll be taking our reading from there to begin with. To be quite honest, I'm probably going to do more reading of Scripture than anything else this evening because, you know, I guess one of the things that oftentimes when a preacher is preparing a sermon to be preached, um, you know, oftentimes we try to come up with real-life illustrations that will help us to to grasp and to, to really get the picture of what to the Scripture is saying to us. But I think the greatest illustrations that we can possibly find are the ones that God gives, gives us Himself. So we're going to begin with our reading here, and uh, and then we're going to go back into the Old Testament. We're going to look at an illustration of just what I think that is one of the really relevant things that we can get from this passage here in Philippians chapter 2. Uh, before we read that, I'll just remind you that uh, uh, I made mention of a verse this morning as we were reading through 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that in verse 25 it said that there should be no schism. That's speaking of, of, of divisions within the body. Uh, there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another. And I made mention at that point that God willing this evening we would be talking about that very thought. And I guess that's one of the things that put me to thinking along these lines, that care one for another. What is caring enough? Uh, you know, there's not many people that say, I don't care. Uh, well, you might about some things, but uh, most of the time when you're talking about each other and you're talking about the church and you're a Christian, you're talking about the things of God, most people say, I care, but do we care enough? Uh, do we care enough about a lot of things? And there's lots of things we could mention, but I just want to point out a few that I hope will be a blessing to you this evening. So we're going to begin with our scripture reading, which I will invite you to stand, if you'd like, to honor the reading of God's Word. And we're going to begin in Philippians chapter 2, a very familiar passage, beginning there in verse 1 and reading the entirety of the chapter. The Bible says, If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. Nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. What mind? Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. That was the mind of Christ. That's the mind that should be in us. Wherefore, he says, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Yes, if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. For the same cause also do ye joy and rejoice with me. But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timotheus shortly unto you that I also may be of good comfort when I know your state. For I have no man like-minded whom will naturally care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ. Seem to have the same selfish attitude as a problem in their days. But ye know the proof of him that as a son with the Father, he hath served me in the gospel. Him, therefore, I hope to send presently as soon as I shall see how it will go with me. But I trust in the Lord that also myself shall come shortly. Yet I supposed it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and companion in labor and fellow soldier, but your messenger and he that ministered to my wants. For he longed after you all and was full of heaviness because that he had heard that he had been sick. For indeed he was sick, nigh unto death, but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I sent him therefore the more carefully that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and that I may be the less sorrowful. Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness, and hold such in reputation, because for the work of Christ he was nigh unto death, not regarding his life to supply your lack of service toward me. Father, we thank you again this evening, Lord, for your precious word that we have before us. Now, Lord, as we have a few moments before us to take and look into your word, we pray for that power that is beyond our own. We pray that you would take, Lord, and speak to our hearts that which needs to be spoken in this place tonight, that, Lord, each heart might be receptive to that which you have for them. For in Christ's name we pray, amen and amen. Caring enough about what? Well, it's certainly clear from this passage, one of the things that we see, and we've looked at different things over the years. We've pulled different things out of this passage, and we can spend a whole lot of time just on that chapter and all the, the wonderful things that are in there for us. But when we look at it overall in these 30 verses and what Paul was writing to the church here at Philippi, one thing that's clear from the passage is how deeply that the Apostle Paul cared. We see how deeply that he cared for the Lord. We see how deeply that he cared for these, these brethren at, at Philippi that were his brothers and sisters in Christ. We see how deeply that he cared to be able to, to minister to their needs that they might have. We saw his willingness to do whatever he could, whatever was necessary, not for himself, but for them and for the Lord, he cared enough to do some things that would probably be a good idea if we just ask ourselves today if, if we care enough and just 
what it means to care enough. I know that some of you may have heard, how many of you would recognize the name uh, Calvin Coolidge? Mean anything to anybody? Doesn't really matter for the sake of illustration, but many moondocks back way before my time, he was a president of the United States. But he was a man that uh, I guess was known to have uh, very little personality. And I read the story once of a time that he had been invited to a party at uh, the Lindbergh's home that was giving this party, and he was one of the, uh, the guests there. And one of the conversations that, that took place as people were discussing because it had become a topic as to whether he might be running for president of the United States. And, of course, overall, most of them thought that it just wouldn't be a good idea because he just didn't have that, that personality to be able to, to grab people. They figured that if they put him forth for the nomination that he'd never be able to win. But there was a little, I think, if I remember correctly, and I've messed all around with my notes there, I think it was about a six-year-old little girl that was there at the party that belonged to the family. And as these people were discussing this, she said, well, I liked him. And everybody stopped and they looked at this little girl and said, well, why did you like him? She said, because he was the only person at the party that asked me what was wrong with my bandaged finger. He cared enough to want to know what was wrong with my finger. And, of course, that goes to say a whole lot because he did go on to be president of the United States, and he was known that even though they didn't have this, this great shining personality, that there was something about the man that he knew that he cared. He cared deeply. And I guess that's the thing. You know, people can look at us and we might can, can stand out for all kinds of reasons. We might have all kinds of, of personality that would get people's attention. But when they look at us, is that something like this little girl that they would think, I like him, I like her, because I know they care. You know, and I think that's one of the things many times with children that sometimes as we get older, we tend to pass... Children sometimes much, much, much better than adults. They know what's real. They know when somebody genuinely cares. They know when something is just artificial and fake. I've said to you many times that, uh, uh, you know, I guess that uh, there are no perfect people in this world except for that, that one that died for us on the cross. Uh, but, of course, one of the most influential people in my life was, was, was my own dad. And I guess that, you know, growing up in a, in, a, in a pastor's home, you see a lot of good things and you see a lot of bad things. Uh, you see, a, you see uh, people all kinds of ways that to some that are just sold out to Christ for everything and some that, uh, you know, you, you wonder if they're ever even really, really saved or not. But you see all kinds of things. But, you know, there was one thing that, that my dad showed me in his own life that had such an impact on me. Um, I don't know how many of you have heard me say it before, but it's, it's the one thing that I honestly prayed and asked God, if I could have any trait within my dad, would he please give me that one? And that was his capacity to be able to love people no matter who they were, no matter how bad they'd messed up, uh, no matter what status that they were in life, his caring about people was so genuine. He was one of these people that, uh, you know, you might meet him for the first time in your life, but you know, said that he never met a stranger uh, because he just cared about people, that he was comfortable with people. And I guess the one thing that I saw, though people did a lot of good things and bad things and all through the years, the one thing that never changed in my dad was that he cared for them. 
and he cared for them. And I mean, you know, whether, whether it was good times or bad times, you know, it's like even the young people in the church, when they got in trouble, they knew they could pick up the phone and that he would be there on the other end. And I think that that's one of the things that around us, we, we looked at that passage this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that was talking about us as a body. And of course, we've moved into chapter 13 because Paul said, you know, you can do all these things and have all these wonderful gifts and be able to accomplish all these things, but I'm going to show you a better way, that way of charity, that way of love. Because you can do all these things, but without love, it's going to be meaningless. And you know, so many times in our Christian lives and in our churches, we can, we can learn to do all the right things and we can be so professional. But I just want to ask you a simple question this evening that only you can answer, and that's, do you care enough? Do you really genuinely, deeply in your heart and your soul care enough? enough? Because the Bible is very explicit. I mean, just a couple of verses in in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 4 that, uh, uh, that we just looked at here, he says, Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. We have a specific responsibility to care about others. In 1 John chapter 3 and verse 17, he says, But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother hath need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? You know, that the world may have certain ideas and the world may think that we're just absolutely gone off the deep end and we're cuckoo and we're bananas and all these other wonderful descriptive illustrations that they can come up with because they see us giving money to the church and giving money to missions and, and then going beyond that on a personal level when we see brothers and sisters in need that our heart opens up and we want to be able to. They don't understand we're not doing this to reserve a seat in heaven. We're not doing it so that we'll be welcomed through the pearly gates one day. We're doing it because, as we sang earlier, of the Christ that liveth in us. You know, when Christ is controlling our lives, you know, he asks us that simple question. You know, he, he, he makes a very specific point when he says, if you've got the world's goods and you see someone else that has a need and yet you just shut up your bowels of compassion, compassion you don't care enough about that person's needs. How dwelleth the love of God in him? How can we say that God is in our lives when we don't care enough about the needs of those around us? Well, I want to just give you a few things uh, that are signs of, of caring enough that, that we can certainly pull out of this passage. And I'm going to use four things. And I first sat down, and, 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 and of course, as we look at these things this evening, most of the time, if I said I was going to use an F word, you'd think the preacher had really messed up because when we think of a four-letter F words, we think of really, really bad words. I don't want to give you some good ones this evening that I hope will just help you remember it. And, of course, this first one, you probably won't find it in a dictionary, uh, but it's one that we used to use where I grew up, and I'm not sure if you might have had it, heard it used in, in your life or not, but I believe that one of the things as we begin to look here, and we're going to look at the Apostle Paul but I want us to look back at, at a great illustration in the Old Testament at a man called Nathan. Nathan was a prophet in King David's time. And as we look at the relationship between him and King David, and this is why I said I'm just going to read a lot of Scripture to you this evening. I want you to grasp and see this relationship that was going on and what we can gain from that. The first thing I believe that if we're going to care enough, we need to care enough to fess up, to fess up. 
Have you ever heard that term before, fess up? Fess up? In other words, confess. Instead of saying confess, fess up. Come on out with it. Just, just admit what it is that, that, that you've done wrong. And I believe that if we care enough, we need to do some fessing up. Uh, we need to admit when we've made mistakes. We need to swallow that, that pride that keeps us there that, you know, I don't know, have you ever maybe spoken something in haste and with the very best of intentions and everything, and then you discovered later that what you said wasn't exactly right. <laughs> Matter of fact, what you said might have just been simply wrong. But yet, what do we do about it? Well, that's what happens to, to, to Nathan here as we look back. If you turn in your Bibles back to, to 2 Samuel, and as we turn to 2 Samuel, let's begin in chapter 7 of 2 Samuel, and I want you to notice what is, is taking place here. The Bible says, first of all, in, in, in the first few verses says, and it came to pass when the king, talking about King David, sat in his house and the Lord had given him rest around about all of his enemies, things were going good. You know, the, the, he had been fighting all these battles, but now he was in a period of rest. It says that the king said unto Nathan the prophet, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwelleth within curtains. David began to be troubled about something. You know, I've, I've got this wonderful house of cedars that I live in, and yet God's just got a tent. <laughs> look, at, look at where we, we, we worship God. You know, at this point, God's house had always been a tent. That was the most covering that it had, had ever had. David saying, you know, Nathan, you know, it's time we did something about this. He goes on in verse, verse 3, and Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in thine heart, for the Lord is with thee. Well, I mean, this sounds like it's got to be a good thing. King David wants to go out, and he wants to build God a temple, and surely God deserves that. All God's got is that, that tent they've been dragging around all over the place. So Nathan, a prophet, a good man, naturally, as soon as the king talks about this, he jumps right in there and says, yes, king, that is a grand idea. Verse 3 tells us, and Nathan said to the king, go and do all that is in thine heart. Not only is it a good thing, for the Lord is with thee. He had the gall tell him, you know, God's blessing is upon this. This is what God wants as well. It's not just me that thinks it's a good thing, but God's blessing is going to be with you. Well, Isaiah the prophet had something to say about that. In Isaiah 55, 8, he said, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. You know, just because we think something's good doesn't mean that God thinks it's good. Just because we think this is the way to do it doesn't necessarily mean even we can look and we can rationalize, well, it's a good thing. That doesn't mean it's God's way or God's case. That was the case with Nathan. Notice what happens in the next verse. It says, and it came to pass that night that the word of the Lord came into Nathan. Now, Nathan's already spoke, and he's already said exactly what God wants. But suddenly God decides to have a word with him. He says in verse 5, go and tell my servant David, thus saith the Lord, shall thou build me an house for me to dwell in? Nathan this was a man of God. Nathan, you're a good man. But now you've told King David something that you didn't come and talk to me about. Now I want you to go and tell him something. We find that he was actually called on to correct himself, to fess up to the king. 
Say, King, I know you had this grand idea. And I know I told you that it was a good idea. And I even told you that God's blessings would be upon you for it. But God's got other ideas. You see, he begins to explain to him, Shalt thou build me a house for me to dwell in? He said, Whereas I have not dwelt in any house since the time that I brought up the children of Israel out of Egypt. I've never had any permanent house since I chose a people and brought them out, even to this day. But have walked in a tent and in a tabernacle. And in all the places wherein I have walked with all the children of Israel, spake I a word with any of the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to feed my people Israel, saying, Why build ye not me in a house of cedar? And you can read on down because it's exciting reading down, down through about verse, uh, verse 16 there. God is just asking him, look, you think it's a good idea. You've told the king that it's a good idea for me, that I'll bless it. But if I ever ask you to build me a house, is this something anywhere have I ever given you any instructions to do this? What makes you think it's such a good idea? What makes you think this is what I want? We find that, that uh, in fact, that God had other ideas. And God had other plans because God knew some things even about King David at this time with all the blessings that were upon him that Nathan the prophet didn't know. You know, God knows each and every one of our lives, and he knows what lies ahead of us. And, of course, Nathan, it says in verse 17, according to all these words and according to all this vision, so did Nathan speak unto David. Nathan had to eat his own words. He had to swallow his pride. He had to go back not just to anybody, but he had to go before the king, the, the, the man that held the most supreme position in his day. And he said, I know I told you this, but I was wrong. I was wrong. And you know, I honestly believe, I honestly believe that if we care enough about the people that we're talking to, if we care enough about the Lord and about his work, that one of the things that we've got to be willing to do is fess up when we know that we've made a mistake. It may be out and out sin that needs to be confessed to the Lord and needs to be dealt with because we're never, ever going to have the right relationship as long as that there. But I'm talking about even before that point when maybe we've just made, with all the best intentions in the world, we've been wrong. But we've got to be willing to fess up. We've got to be willing to go to Him. I remember that, again, as we look there in Philippians through this verse, that much of what the Apostle Paul has to say there is this confessing and forsaking of the sin that's in their lives if they, if they want to be able to have that right relationship. I don't know how many of you have ever heard the name Frederick Charrington. Frederick Charrington was a member of a very wealthy family here in England. And, of course, it was the Charrington family that owned the Charrington Brewery which produced a well, well-known beer. Matter of fact, his personal fortune was something in the, in the excess of, of $66 million all those years ago. He was a wealthy man. The story's told one night when Charrington was walking along a, a London street with a, with a few of his friends. And suddenly as they were walking along the, the door of a pub, I mean, everybody's walked by pubs before, right? Well, he was walking by this pub, and the door just flew open, and just this man came staggering out of the door and onto the street, 
And there was this woman that was just clinging on to him desperately. Of course, this man was obviously very drunk, very inebriated. And he was swearing at this woman in language that nobody ought to be speaking to anybody. He was trying to push her away to stop her from from being able to have a hold on him. And of course, he said as he looked at this lady, he realized that she looked in a pretty pitiful state. Her clothes were just all worn out. There was nothing, nothing nice about them, and she was crying, and she was pleading with him. And I wrote down these words that, you know, she was saying something like, please, dear, please. The children haven't eaten in two days. I've not eaten in a week. For the love of God, please come home. Or if you must stay, just at least give me a few coins so I can buy the children some food. Charrington was hearing this conversation take place between this lady and her husband. But suddenly, her pleas were cut off because her husband just held off with a savage blow and, and struck her and knocked her to the ground, and she collapsed there on the pavement, unconscious. The man stood over, still with his fists clenched, Looked like he was actually going to strike her again, even though that she was already knocked down. And of course, Charrington himself has said, leaped forward at that time and, and grabbed a hold of this, this drunk man. And he struggled with him and he was swearing at him, but Charrington finally pinned the man's arms securely behind his back. And they rushed to this woman's side and they began to try to help her and to minister to the wounds that she had. A little while later, a policeman came along and he led the drunk man away and the lady was taken to, to hospital. But Charrington, he, he brushed the dirt off himself and he noticed a light suddenly that was lighted in the window of that pub. You know what that light said? It said, drink Charrington Ale. <laughs> drink Charrington Ale. And this multimillionaire, this man that was responsible for this that was being brewed, he was said he was suddenly shaken to the very core of his being. He realized by the confrontation of what this product that he brewed, that he was responsible for, that he was responsible for putting out there what it had done to this man, what it had done to this family, what it was responsible for. And of course, it says that in his words, he later wrote, when I saw that sign, I was stricken just as surely as Paul on the Damascus Road. Here was the source of my family wealth, and it was producing untold human misery before my own eyes. Then and there, I pledged to God that not another penny of that money should ever come to me. A man, multi, multi, multi millions. But if that's the way that his family was going to make that money, he wanted nothing that was coming from it because that was too big a price to pay. History records that Frederick Charrington became one of the most well-known temperist activists in all of England. Uh, he renounced his share of the family fortune. He devoted the rest of his life to the ministry of freeing men and women from the curse of the very product that he had helped to put out there to the public. We find that, you know, I guess that he cared enough to admit, and you know, it's amazing sometimes. I was talking to somebody about this yesterday. It is amazing how that finances and money 
can sure sway our thinking into whether something is right or wrong. I mean, if it's going to cost us a lot, we can somehow come to a point of rationalizing a lot of things that we wouldn't otherwise. And we were talking about specific things, and I've, I've seen it happen time and time again. But I guess the simple thought is this. Nathan cared enough that he was willing to fess up. He was willing to say, I made a mistake, and I need to correct it. That's what Charrington did. You know, it took a, 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 a violence taking place before his eyes for him to recognize it. But he was willing to say, even though it was costing him all that money by God's help, I'll not have anything to do with that again. You know, if we're going to care enough, we've got to be willing to fess up. Swallow that pride, fess up. But not only do we need to be able to fess up, we need to be able to face up. We need to be able to fess up to our sins that we've made, but we need to be able to face up to sin. You know, the truth is, is that, of course, the passage in Philippians goes without saying that much of what is dealing there is to get rid of the sin in their lives and, and not to allow these things to be a part of them. But I want you to notice in our illustration here in Second Samuel, and this one called Nathan, go just a few years down and, and, and you find in chapter 11, and I'm not going to read all of that because most of you are familiar with King David as he was walking up on his rooftop and as he looked and he he saw this beautiful woman, and he decided that he wanted that beauty for himself. And, of course, he sends her husband out into battle with instructions that he would be killed. And then he comes back, and he takes this woman to be his own wife. And, of course, she bore him a son. We find that David was in a position that he could do that, and nobody could do anything about it. This was a man that had known God's blessings on his life in a phenomenal way. But you can read through chapter 11 there, and you can find out how that despite all that God had done for him, that lust of the flesh got a hold of him in such a way that he, he committed this horrible, horrible sin. Then in verse 26 and 27, And when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when the morning was past, David sent and fetched her to his house, and she became his wife and bare him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. It displeased the Lord. Now, notice down in chapter 12, suddenly in the midst of this horrible thing, here's this fellow Nathan coming on the scene again. And notice what it says there in chapter 12. It says, and the Lord sent Nathan. David commits this horrible sin. God is displeased with it. Now, this is one job, you know, I mean, he's calling on Nathan to go out and, and do something, and the Lord sent Nathan unto David. He's the king. He's got the power to do anything. He can lock him away or have his life taken or whatever. God says, Nathan, I've got a job for you to do because I'm displeased with the king. And he came unto him and said unto him, there were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. This is what God told him to say to the king, and this is what he's telling King David. The rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing save one little ewe lamb which he had brought and nourished up, and it grew up together with him and with his children, and it did eat of his own meat and drink of his own cup and lay in his bosom and was unto him as a daughter. In other words, here's these two people. Here's this rich guy that's got all these ewe lambs in the world. Here's one. They've got one. 
But it's a pet. It's been raised up with the family. It's been eating with the kids. It's been right there as, as part of the family. Said it was, it was like his own children, his, his own daughter. Well, some of you know. Pets can very much become a part of a person's family, and they, they really feel like they're just as much a part of that family as if they were human beings. Well, this is the case with this lamb. There came a traveler unto the rich man, and he spared to take of his own flock and of his own herd to dress for the wayfaring man that was coming to him, but took the poor man's lamb and was dressed it for the man that was come to him. In other words, here comes along this traveler that's really hungry that needs food. He's got all these ewe lambs out there, but instead of taking one of his to feed the man that needed feeding, he took the one that was the pet to that family and used that one to feed that traveler with. And David's anger was greatly kindled against that man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord liveth, the man that hath done this thing shall surely die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, thou art the man. King David, that was you. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I anointed thee king over Israel, and I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul, and I gave thee thy master's house and thy master's wives into thy bosom, and gave thee the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little, I would moreover have given unto thee such and such things. Wherefore hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? Thou hast killed Uri the Hittite with the sword and hast taken his wife to be thy wife and hast slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from thine house because thou hast despised me and hast taken the wife of Uri the Hittite to be thy wife. Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against thee out of thine own house and I will take thy wives before thine eyes and give them unto thy neighbor, and he shall lie with thy wives in the sight of this son. For thou didst it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. And David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan said unto David, The Lord also hath put away thy sin. Thou shalt not die. How be it? Because this deed thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born unto thee shall surely die. God's had mercy on you, David. You're not going to die because of that sin, but you're going to lose that child, that child that uh, is on its way, that has been born of you. I want you to stop and think about something. You know, Nathan cared enough. He cared enough for the Lord that when the Lord told him to do something, he was willing to do it regardless of what the risk was. And what God was telling him to do here was to face up to sin. I know he's the king. I know he holds the power of this nation in his hand. But what he's done is wrong, and you need to go to him on my behalf and tell him that this is sin, that he needs to correct it in his life. Now, this is not some kind of judgmental gossip that is so popular with a lot of people, when somebody messes up, they go telling everybody else how horrible the mess up is. What's here, we see if we look into the New Testament, we look at the passages and what we're directed there, Nathan is to go to the king himself. He doesn't go behind his back. He doesn't go to talking to anybody else. He faces him with his sin. And that's what God always tells us to do. Not to do things behind people's backs, but to face up to it. 
And if it's sin, call it sin, regardless of who's committed it, regardless of who has, has done this terrible thing, we need to be able to face up to it. We find that in the New Testament, I'll just read these passages and we'll move on. Galatians 6, 1, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Don't ever think that you're so high and mighty and strong and spiritual that you can't fall. And if one of your brothers falls, you want to go to him and help restore him, help lift him up. Don't go out there, you know, your nose up in the air thinking what a good Christian person you are and what a horrible Christian they are. It might be you. There's one that's tempted next time. Matthew chapter 18, we looked at this passage, uh, I think it was this morning. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be done unto thee as any heathen man and a publican. There is accountability, and God's accountability is through the church. People don't want accountability. The Bible says the, the church is accountable to help restore the brethren. If you're the one, and I pointed this out this morning, doesn't say if you've done somebody wrong, it's when your brother has transgressed against you. You're the one that's been done wrong. You're the one that's, you know, it's easy to sit back and say, well, you know, I'm not speaking to them. They, they owe me an apology. They should be saying, I'm sorry to me. I'm not going to do anything until they are men enough to come and do that. The Bible says, no, if they've transgressed against you, you go to them to straighten it out. You're the one that's been wronged, but you go to them. Nobody else. If they won't listen to you, then you go back with one or two more. That's when you come to your pastor, your elders, your deacons. You get somebody to help you resolve this thing. If they still won't listen, it comes before the church. Always, always the purpose is restoration, to restore that one to their previous position 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 and to 11, I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world or with the covetousness or extortioners or with the idolaters, for then must ye needs go out of the world. You're not going to get away from all of them because they're all around you. But now I've written unto you not to keep company if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner with such an one no, not to eat. You see, the thing is, the Bible is very strong when we're to face up to sin. We're to love people, but at the same time that we're to face up to sin, at the same time we're to do everything we can. We go to the person that's wrong because we're trying to see them restored. We don't ever start getting messed up in their sin. Matter of fact, the Bible's talking about there if they haven't been restored, in Matthew, you're to treat them like an infant, like a lost person. You say, well, how do you treat a lost person? Well, you love them, but at the same time, they can't be a part of your spiritual life. They can't be a part of the church. You treat them like somebody that wasn't saved until they start acting like a saved person again. You see, if we care enough about somebody, we're not going to pretend that their sin doesn't matter. But we're not going to go around trying to destroy them behind their backs. We're going to go to them face to face, just like Nathan had to do with King David, and we're going to go to them with God's word of what God has said about their sin. Because God's word is the only thing that will bring them to repentance.
and we should do everything that we possibly can. But when we stand up against sin, the Bible is very, very clear that we're not to partake in that. And it's not even just the world. He makes it very clear, not just to stay away from it in the world, but if you've got Christian friends that are involved in these things, you shouldn't be having fellowship with them either. You need to stand up against the sin in a loving way. You need to point out to them. You know, you don't go out there condemning them. You just, you just you take the Word of God just as Nathan did. God says this is wrong, and so I can't have a part in it. We find that if we care enough, we've got to be willing to swallow our pride and fess up, and we've got to be willing to stand against sin and face up. But at the same time that we're facing up, we need to also to care enough to firm up to firm something up, to, to build something up, to firm up our, our relationship. You see, if you, if you really care, this is being done with compassion. A little sympathizing doesn't go astray. A little caring, a little trying to, to be a comfort and soothe those others that are hurting. Much of what we see in Philippians chapter 2 is, is that genuine love and compassion flowing through the apostle Paul towards these brethren you see, David's confession and repentance was complete. You can turn to Psalm 51 and you can actually read about it where his confession is recorded in the Word of God for us there. He records his confession. He was forgiven fully. Even Nathan told him, but the baby still died. There were still consequences for that sin. Sometimes it's hard to grasp, well, how, you know, how do you forgive on the one hand and still have these bad things? And I could give you all kinds of, of illustrations. You know, the fact is you can go out and you can murder somebody. And, you know, Jesus died for the murderers. And if that murderer comes and truly repents of his sin, if he truly gets it under the blood of Jesus Christ, he can be totally forgiven. But that dead person doesn't come back to life just because his sin is forgiven. I guess in our day. And I say this with the greatest compassion. So many times today, it's a whole lot easier when that baby that comes along is unwanted. It's easier to just get rid of it, to just treat it like it's nothing. To have that baby aborted as if it was never a living thing. Well, you know, the thing is, that is a horrible thing. And, and, and I'm sorry if you disagree with me, but that's murder in my book. That is a living creature, and we choose to take its life for whatever that convenience might be. You know what? God will just as readily accept that mother with all the compassion and mercy and love in the world and forgive her for killing that child. But that child will never come back to life. There's no way of bringing it back. We need to realize and recognize there are consequences for our sin. There are consequences for our sins, even when we're totally forgiven. But the problem is a lot of times is that <laughs> it's not God that has the problem with the forgiving. It's you and I. It's you and I. You see, David confessed, but that child still died. And guess what? <laughs> it's a few years later now. And here in 2 Samuel chapter 12, we find that this guy Nathan is on the scene again here. In verse 24 and 25, 
not at when that first baby that had died, but at this other birth of this one called Solomon. And notice what it says in verse 24 and 25. And David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and went unto her and lay with her, and she bare a son, and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him. The other baby died. Now they're having another child. What happened when that baby was born? And he sent by the hand of Nathan, the prophet. God uses Nathan again. And he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. <laughs> you see, God is righteous. But God is also merciful. Aren't you glad? <laughs> Aren't you glad that he has mercy upon us? David sinned horribly, and God was very displeased with that sin. And Nathan had to go face him with that sin. But God didn't withhold his blessing. Yes, that baby died. But when Solomon was born, he wanted Nathan to go down and tell King David that he loved that child. He loved Solomon to convey this love to David, and he even gave him a nickname, this Jedidiah here, which literally means Beloved of the Lord. <laughs> Beloved of the Lord. You see, Nathan could have thought, well, man, I'm not having anything else. You know what that guy did? I mean, man, he was nasty. He went and had this woman's husband murdered, killed, just so he could take her for his wife. He could have had all these grudges. He could have had these ideas in his head. But God said, Nathan, I want you to go down and show him that I love him. I want you to go down there with compassion and love in your heart. I want you to go down there to firm him up, to build him up, to show him that I care, to comfort them, to show him that God still loves them even though they failed me. Maybe Nathan figured, well, <laughs> you know, if God forgave him, I need to as well. It's a whole lot harder for us a lot of times. Ephesians 4.32 says, And be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. We've got to be willing, no matter what a person has done, no matter horrible, how horrible their sin was, we've got to be willing to forgive just like Jesus Christ forgave us. There is no sin that a person can commit that is too big to be forgiven. The Bible says that the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is the only unforgivable sin in all the world. Of course, we've talked about what that is. If you ever commit it, you'll never know it anyway because you'll be so cold and past God working with you anymore. The truth is, is that God's willing to forgive that person just like he did King David or just like Nathan. We need to be willing to go to them with love and compassion and to share the love of God with them. You see, being a Christian, part of being a Christian is that comforting, encouraging one another. We've been talking about that passage, and let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, to provoke each other to love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching, God tells us that we need to be together. We need to be encouraging each other. We need to be provoking each other to love and to good works and building each other up and encouraging each other. If we care enough, you're going to be there to firm up your brother, even if it's not convenient, even if it might cost you something. 
You see, we've been seeing recently that, you know, when we come together as a body, it's not for what the body can do for me. It's because I can do something for somebody else. Everything that I do is for the betterment of the whole, not for me, for the body of Christ, for the other individual. Do we care enough? Romans 12, 15 says, Rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep. We've talked about this. You know, we should hurt when another part of the body is hurting. We should be willing to do everything that we possibly can to help them, to show that. I won't uh, take time to go through the whole illustration, but I read the story of a, of a little girl that had leukemia. And I guess they'd been going through all this treatment and she'd gotten so discouraged and she'd got to the point to where she just didn't want anymore. She just didn't want them to mess with her anymore. And they were really concerned because they couldn't get her to eat. They couldn't get her to do these things. And they, they so wanted to help her, but she wouldn't let them. And all these doctors and nurses and everybody else, they, they called in all these specialists to help and whatnot. And there was a friend that decided that she was just going to send her a flower from the florist. And she went into the florist and she explained to her that she wanted this rose. She wanted to send it to this, to this girl because of what was going on. The florist was so touched that, that she did. The flower was sent. And the little girl got it and she opened it and there was a card there that as she read it, it was from this friend that cared and that meant a lot to her, but it didn't really change her attitude that she had all that she could take. She just wasn't going to go on anymore. But then she saw another card in there and the other card in there was the one that was from the florist herself, the one that had, had sent the flower and it had a little note in there and she said, I know how you feel. I had leukemia myself. And she went on to encourage her from that. And that changed the whole attitude. What the doctors couldn't do, the nurses couldn't do, all the professionalism in the world, one lady that didn't even know her showing that she cared encouraged her to start taking her treatment and to start eating again. You see, you never know what that little word of encouragement, what it might do for somebody else. It might be somebody that you know well but it might also be somebody that you hardly know at all. Let me give you this in closing. We need to care enough to swallow our pride and fess up when we make a mistake. We need to care enough to stand up against sin and face up. No matter who it is or where it is or what it is, it's never right. But we face it with God's Word. We also need to care enough to sympathize with others that have faltered, that have maybe faced the, the chastisement of God to, to firm up, to build each other up, especially those that are hurting. I don't want to give you this one in closing. You know what it means to fuse two things together? They're no longer two but one. Folks, we need to fuse up. We need to join up with each other and with others, if you would, to get the job done. We need to be fused together. That's what the whole picture of the body is all about. In our passage here in Philippians, we see that, you know, Paul's in a situation and he cares deeply and he wants to be able to, to encourage these people, but he's not able to go himself. He's hoping that that's going to change and he's going to be able. Why, why couldn't he go right then? He was locked away in prison, wasn't he? He was locked away in jail himself. 
But he said, even though I can't come right now, I, I'm going to send Timothy there instead. And Timothy's going to come in my place. He used Timothy. He used Epaphroditus. Truth is, is that God doesn't call a bunch of lone rangers. We're all responsible to do our part, but God calls us to be a body together, to be cooperative one with another, to do things together so that we can make a difference. You jump ahead just a few more pages in your Bible to 1 Kings chapter 1. You know, at this time, David's about 70 years old, and Nathan's probably about the same age. The time's come for a change of kings. Now he's about ready to, to come off the throne. And, of course, Solomon has already been designated by God as David's successor. Well, if you look here in chapter 1, you begin reading. And, again, I won't read it all because of time, but pick up there in verse 5. It says, Then Adonijah, the son of Haggath, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared him chariots and horsemen and 50 men and run before him. And if you read on down through there, you find here another of David's sons decided, I'm going to be king. David didn't even know all this was, was going on. We find that in verse 11, what do you know? There's that Nathan guy again. Verse 10 says, but Nathan the prophet and Beniah and the mighty men and Solomon his brother, he called out, wherefore Nathan spake, Unto Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, you can read on. Nathan goes to Bathsheba and tells her to go to King David and let him know what's going on, and then he's going to come in and confirm everything that's going on. You see, Nathan's got a job to do, but he can't do it by himself. You find a whole list of those that ends up helping, supporting the king to put this plot down. Well, wasn't that part of the thing that God said he was going to face was Enemies from within his own was going to rise up against him, and it did. But God was still there with him. And you see, the thing is, is that this is a point where the battle was serious, but together they were able to destroy this plot. And Solomon was able to go to the throne and be king as was meant to be. You see, Nathan knew how to fuse with others. He knew how to work together with other people. And that's a key for us today. Do we care enough? You know, there's a whole lot of things, but this is just a simple illustration in one man's life. And, I, and, I've, and I've taken and, I, and, I, and I've tried to just make it, if you would, light in these words to help you remember it if you can, that folks, everybody says they care. But do we really care enough? Do we care enough to swallow our pride and fess up when we get it wrong? Do we care enough to stand up against sin, to face up with the Word of God, no matter where it is, no matter who it entails, no matter who that has part in it? Are we willing to sympathize with others and firm up and build up, encourage each other, especially those that are hurting and we're willing to share in the work and to fuse up with others, to join with others, to accomplish the work that we can't do on our own, but that together 
God will use us to do together. Father, we thank you this evening, Lord, that as we look, Lord, we know that this illustration of one man is just, Lord, I believe, showing us the heart of what the Apostle Paul was trying to write at the church there in Philippi. He cared so greatly. He was not ashamed of that. The things that he was trying to accomplish in that, we find that this great illustration of this prophet called Nathan, there in the life of King David, Lord, that you used him to do those same things in caring enough to do the right things, to do what was necessary. Lord, I just pray that you'd help us this evening that, Lord, we won't just go around talking about that we care, but, Lord, that we can take and that we'll care enough to do these things that we saw Nathan do, that we'll care enough. We'll care enough for each other. We'll care enough for you. We'll care enough for your church and for your work. Lord, that we're willing to do the things that are necessary for you to be glorified and honored. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.